Before we start the episode, just a friendly reminder that I'm on Patreon. So if you like the content that I'm creating, then go to patreon.com slash antisocial studies. You can join for as little as $1 a month, and it's a really great way to support the stuff that I'm doing and, I don't know, help me make more stuff from my guest room next to my cat's litter box. Thanks. All right, I know you've all been anxiously awaiting the conclusion of this narrative that literally no one has ever told in history. How does World War II end? Does Hitler create a Reich to last a thousand years? Am I actually speaking Japanese right now? All right, let's get right to it. Today, we're finishing World War II. How did it end? And what happened when the nuclear dust settled and soldiers returned home to a country and an economy that looked completely different than the one they'd left? Today's episode is called Post-World War II America, or boom, baby. This is Antisocial Studies. I'm Emily Glinkler. Settle in and let's go back in time. Act one, the end is near. As we talked about last episode, the overall strategy in both Europe and the Pacific was to just get close enough to the Axis home states where we could do direct damage. And that was much easier, like relatively speaking, in Europe because we had control of bases in places like England and eventually North Africa that were within bombing distance of Germany. However, in the Pacific, it was a bit more complicated considering that, well, you know, Japan is an island in the middle of the largest ocean on earth. Our friend China would have been really helpful right about now, but they were kind of dealing with their own Japanese invasion and, you know, domestic communist threat. So we set up permanent shop in Australia and then hopped from island to island fighting Japanese soldiers and sometimes civilians all along the way. We were inching our way close enough to an island that could launch bombers to hit Japan. But before we get to that, really the battles that you kind of need to know for World War II are the turning points. So the main turning point in the Pacific was the Battle of Midway. Essentially, besides the initial attack at Pearl Harbor, Midway, which is an island in the Pacific, was the closest the Japanese ever got to North America during the actual war. And full disclosure, a lot of this next part is taken directly from my World War II episode from season one because as a teacher in the midst of a pandemic, there's really no need to reinvent the wheel. So the naval fleet that had escaped destruction at Pearl Harbor was camped out near the island of Midway and the Japanese wanted to destroy it. So for context, we had just fought the Battle of Coral Sea, the first naval battle in world history where the fighting ships never even saw each other. Like the entire battle was fought by planes launched from opposing ships. And I mean, there was no clear winner in that battle itself, but the after effects were a win for the US because for one, we destroyed or damaged two of their battleships. So they were not able to participate in the next even larger naval battle. And it also marked the first time we stopped the Japanese advance across the Pacific. And although one of our ships, the Yorktown was seriously damaged, it was repaired and back in action in just three days. And this brings me to an important point. How did the US win the war? And we'll talk more about it in a few minutes, but one of the main answers is that our factories won the war, meaning the industrial capacity that the US had built up since the Gilded Age, and that really kicked into high gear by the government during the war, and motivated by the decade of the Great Depression, all of this was a huge advantage over other countries. Now, Japan had been doing the exact same thing. If you remember from season one, they went through their Meiji restoration at the same time we were emerging from the Civil War. In a lot of ways, really, our paths have been parallel, but the difference was that Japan relied on trade or outright imperialism to gain access to industrial materials. They either had to negotiate a trading agreement, often with the United States, or they had to just take over land in Asia. And now, say what you will about Manifest Destiny and the American conquest from sea to shining sea, and I mean, I have on this podcast, but this did prove to be a huge advantage for us during the war because we were in control of our own raw materials that could fuel the factories. 
Throughout the war, for every one warship built by the Japanese, the U.S. built 16. And the fact that two of the Japanese aircraft carriers were out of commission for months after the Battle of the Coral Sea, while ours was back on the water in three days, is just evidence of how efficient and how effective our industry at home had grown to be. Anyway, back to the battles. After the Battle of Coral Sea, the Japanese had made a plan to attack an island near Pearl Harbor and draw the American fleet into a trap. But cryptographers had been working for months to break Japanese code, analyzing radio messages from weather reports to battle plans. You get it, you've seen the imitation game. And they thought they had done it. The US codebreakers figured out that the code AF referred to our base at the Midway Atoll. And now's the point where I wanna make some sort of joke about like Midway AF, but I feel like that's beneath me. The Gen Z listeners get it. So the codebreakers wanted to make sure that they were right, so they set a trap. They instructed radio operators at Midway to send a message to Pearl Harbor that their saltwater evaporators had broken down. And soon after, the codebreakers intercepted a Japanese message saying that AF was running out of drinking water. Aha! The game is the foot. With this information, Pacific Fleet Commander Chester Nimitz put his ships in a position to surprise the Japanese ships that they were setting up the trap. It was a trap within a trap! Military historians have called the ensuing Battle of Midway, quote, the most stunning and decisive blow in the history of naval warfare. Japan lost all four of its fleet carriers, three of whom were destroyed in less than an hour. And by comparison, the U.S. only lost one. And the Japanese lost 3,000 men, 10 times more than the U.S.'s 300 deaths. So this was the turning point after which the U.S. forces were slowly pushing the Japanese back toward Japan. As one historian put it, that the Americans at Midway changed the course of World War II is indisputable. At 10 o'clock on the morning of June 4th, 1942, the Japanese were winning the Pacific War. An hour later, three Japanese aircraft carriers were on fire and sinking. So as the Navy hops from island chain to island chain, which is way less fun than it sounds, MacArthur's army gets bogged down recapturing the Philippines. <sighs> Remember MacArthur? He told them he would return, so damn it, he was going to return. In the end, in the Pacific, the final battles came at Iwo Jima and Okinawa. At Iwo Jima, it was clear from the beginning, really, that the U.S. would win, but the Japanese forced us to pay a high cost. It's the only engagement of the Pacific theater where the U.S. had more casualties, dead or injured soldiers, than the Japanese. Although, way more Japanese soldiers died, around 18,000 versus our 7,000 American soldiers. From Iwo Jima, the U.S. had complete control of the skies. We could launch bombers and stealth aircraft over the entire territory of Japan. And after the three-month-long battle at Okinawa, in which 12,000 Americans and potentially 100,000 Okinawans and Japanese died, the U.S. was now capable of staging a land invasion of Japan. Okay, let's pause here and rewind a bit to see what's going on at the same time in Europe. So, okay, it's 1942. Looking at the global conflict, the tide has turned in the Pacific with Midway, and on the Eastern Front with Stalingrad. For more detail on that turning point battle, check out my season one episode on World War II. So the Allies in the West had to figure out how to get onto the continent of Western Europe. In 1943, they come up from the South through North Africa and eventually Italy, but the last major turning point is the Allied invasion of Nazi-occupied France, known as D-Day. Officially, this is known as the Battle of Normandy, and its code name was Operation Overlord. Sounds so cool. On June 6, 1944, 156,000 American, Canadian, and British forces landed on five beaches along a 50-mile stretch of heavily fortified French coastline. Over 5,000 ships brought 160,000 troops. By the way, 60,000 of those men didn't even make it to the shore. They died before they got to the land. 
The fiercest fighting for the United States was at Omaha Beach. There, of the first company of men who left the boats and stormed the beaches, two-thirds of them died without firing a single shot. 13,000 paratroopers had already parachuted into France. They were behind enemy lines trying to gain control of important infrastructure like roads and bridges to allow the invading forces to march through France. And there's an HBO miniseries called Band of Brothers that follows a group of paratroopers who were involved in D-Day. It's incredible. Like, you really should stop listening to this. Go watch it. We'll wait. Oh my god, wasn't that so good? And it had Ross from Friends. Who knew? All right, so the D-Day invasion took an enormous amount of coordination and planning, all of which was overseen by American Dwight D. Eisenhower, our future president, spoiler alert. Over 425,000 people were killed or went missing during the Battle of Normandy. 2,500 Americans died in a single day, but the Allied victory turned the tide in the war in Europe. So from this point on, the Allies are advancing toward the hearts of the Axis powers. The Americans, French, and British are closing in on Germany from the West, the Russians are coming from the East, and the Americans are working their way across the Pacific to get within direct striking distance of Japan. All right, now back to 1945. The Allied powers are closing in on all sides. The Battle of the Bulge in Europe that occurred the previous winter was kind of the last huge defensive battle by the Nazis before they just were in full retreat. And so at this point, it really was a race to Berlin between the English, French, Americans from the West and the Soviets from the East. And unfortunately for us, the Soviets got there first, but not before Hitler committed suicide in his bunker on April 30th, 1945. So how did we win the war in Europe? Well, our industrial capacity was a huge help, and D-Day and the Battle of Bulge were significant American achievements, but in reality, Europe was saved from Hitler by the Russians. Like, for most of the war, all the other allies had been pushed off the continent completely. And really, the only thing keeping Germany from expanding even further and potentially conquering England directly was the fact that they had to hold off millions of Russians on the Eastern Front. Approximately 14 million Russians died during the war. That's 13% of their population. Not of like their military population, 13% of their total population died during the war. Now by comparison, 400,000 Americans died, which was 0.23% of our population. And I'm in no way suggesting that 400,000 dead Americans isn't a tragedy. Uh, that's how many have died of COVID as of recording this podcast. But it's really important to understand the magnitude of the loss that Russia experienced. And when you add in the deaths of all the members of the Soviet Union, the total comes to almost 27 million people dead. And we're gonna talk more about this when we get into the Cold War, but just keep this in mind. There's a lot of resentment within the Soviet Union by people who feel like they made the largest sacrifices during the war while the US and its allies sat back for a few years planning D-Day. And to be clear, that's not really fair. That's not what actually happened, but I mean, were we probably fine that most of the people dying on our side were communists who were only allies out of convenience? Yeah, sure. But it's also easy to see how the Soviets would feel resentment regardless of our intentions. Now, in the Pacific theater, it's quite clear how we won. We bombed Japan into oblivion. And I'm not just talking about the two atomic bombs. That's what everyone jumps to. But by the time we dropped those two atomic bombs, we had been conducting air raids and firebombing campaigns to some extent for almost three years. 
Going back to the point about the importance of U.S. innovation, engineering, and production during this time, a turning point came with the creation of the Boeing B-29 Super Fortress in late 1942. It cost $3 billion, with a B, to design and produce. For reference, the Manhattan Project, which developed the atomic bomb, cost $1.9 billion. Basically, the B-29 could fly and drop bombs at both high and low altitudes, and it could fly away further, making it easier to hit Japan from safer distances. Now, really, for way more context on this, you should check out Season 5 of Revisionist History. It's my favorite podcast. There's a four-part series of episodes all about the B-29 bomber and the bombing of Japan. It's really fascinating. So... The thing I want to just make sure we understand is that it wasn't that we were island hopping and then all of a sudden dropped two atomic bombs. We had been conducting traditional air raids on Japan for years, and in the last year of the war, we began firebombing campaigns of major cities, especially Tokyo. And this is something I honestly didn't quite understand until I listened to that revisionist history series, but firebombing is just a more general term for using napalm. Like, napalm was invented by Harvard scientists during World War II, specifically as part of a government competition among various scientific institutions to create the most destructive substance that would burn down Tokyo's wooden buildings. Like, napalm was made specifically to destroy Tokyo. And the trick with napalm is that when it explodes, it splatters this fiery gel that sticks to whatever it lands on and continues burning. It's really horrible. In March of 1945, as the Allies are closing in on Berlin in the European theater, U.S. warplanes dropped 2,000 incendiary bombs on Tokyo in just 48 hours. 16 square miles of the densely populated city burned to the ground, and between 80,000 and 130,000 Japanese people died in just a few hours. And I bring this up for a few reasons. One, it's something that a lot of Americans don't learn about, and that's really my wheelhouse, right, bringing these things up. But second, this was just as destructive and deadly as the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so it's really important as context for our ultimate decision to drop the atomic bombs. So I'm going to leave it to you to decide how you feel about the decision to drop the only two nuclear weapons we've ever used in war. Like, I honestly am not sure what I think about it. Every year we talk about this in my U.S. history classes, and every year I change my mind, depending on who talks last, because I really think it's a complicated argument. And I mean, to be clear, I think it's terrible, right? But if I step back with my historian brain and think about it strategically, I don't know. I'm not so sure. Essentially, the question was, how can we end the war without having to invade Japan? Fighting throughout the Pacific had shown us that the Japanese were willing to fight to the literal last man. So often when it was clear the battle was over, instead of surrendering, the Japanese would run at the U.S. troops in a mass suicide attack. On other islands, they convinced civilians to jump off cliffs en masse rather than being taken by the U.S. So it was clear at this point that we would ultimately win the war with Japan. But like how long and how many lives was it going to take? Now, anecdotally, my grandfather-in-law, Pop-Pop, he joined the Navy as soon as he was old enough, and it was just near the end of the war. And a few Christmases ago, I kind of asked him his thoughts on this, and he told me that he had, quote, never been happier than when he found out that we had dropped the atomic bombs. Now, Pop-Pop isn't a psychopath, I don't think, but he knew as a teenager that if the war kept going, he was going to have to invade Japan and fight from, like, city to city. It was estimated by the War Department that an invasion would lead to 1.7 to 4 million casualties. And assuming the Japanese civilians took up the fight, like 5 to 10 million Japanese deaths. But there was another reason that the U.S. wanted the war with Japan to end quickly, and that's the Soviets were coming. 
Now that Hitler had surrendered, the Soviet army could send some of its troops to help the U.S. fight in Korea, China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. And like, that seemed nice and all, but we weren't thrilled with the idea of Stalin getting a say in how the Pacific would be divided up after the war, especially considering we did most of the fighting and dying in this theater. They already had to give up North Korea to the Soviets after the peninsula was freed from Japanese rule. So essentially the Cold War was beginning as World War II was ending. And Truman understood the importance of having territory in Asia whenever that shaky alliance between the US and the Soviets collapsed. So those are the two rational arguments for ending the war quickly. And at the time, the US military truly felt that it had tried everything else. I mean, if firebombing Tokyo didn't do it, like we weren't sure what else would. After telling Britain, but not our other main ally, the Soviets, uh-oh, and giving a vague warning of, quote, prompt and utter destruction to the Japanese government, the U.S. dropped Little Boy on Hiroshima, a military industrial center in Port City. Still, with no surrender from the Japanese, Fat Man was dropped on Nagasaki three days later, the same day the Soviets formally declared war on Japan. Now, both cities were crucial to the Japanese war effort. Nagasaki was a major military port and the site of most of their shipbuilding and repair operations, but, like, it's similar to what would happen if the Japanese bombed Detroit or New York City. There were many civilians in those cities. And this takes us back to the idea introduced in season one about total war. World War II was the epitome of a total war because everyone was an asset. The soldiers, the kids buying war bonds at home, the Rosies riveting, but that meant that everyone was a target. In the end, between 129,000 and 226,000 people were killed when the two bombs were dropped. The Japanese surrendered and the post-war era began. And amazingly, Japan was gonna turn around and quickly become one of our most important allies and trading partners in the region. But not before Douglas MacArthur paraded through Japan, rewriting their constitution in our own image and ensuring that they were never allowed to build up the military again. MacArthur, he's like everywhere right now. So the war is over. You know the drill, everyone's dancing to Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy while sailors kiss random nurses in the street. Everyone is so happy to just go back to normal. I mean like the normal before the Great Depression. the beginning of the civil rights movement. Except that, you know, not everyone wanted to get back to normal. The good old days weren't good for everyone. And World War II had opened up opportunities and conversations about freedom and discrimination that couldn't just be put back in the box. I mean, first of all, there's the fact that the United States was expressly fighting against an undemocratic government that preached ethnic supremacy while oppressing and killing minorities. In contrast to both Nazi Germany and militaristic Japan, we were supposed to be the good guys. So it became a little, I don't know, awkward when we took a look in the mirror and remembered that we weren't treating African-Americans and other people of color that much better. Like to figure out how to remove citizenship rights from German Jews, Nazi lawyers literally studied the American Jim Crow South and the treatment of Native Americans on Indian reservations. Meanwhile, Americans of color had risked their lives to fight for the idea of freedom. They had, quote, proven themselves in the war, and they gained community and confidence that would embolden them when they came home. So here's just a few facts and figures about the diversity of the U.S. military in World War II. Half a million Hispanic Americans and half a million Jewish Americans served in the war. One third of all able-bodied Native Americans served and the most decorated unit in the history of the U.S. military was the 442nd Regiment, an all-Japanese-American regiment that fought in Europe. 
Of 14,000 second generation Japanese Americans, the unit earned 4,000 Purple Hearts, 4,000 Bronze Star Medals, and 21 Medals of Honor. Arguably the most famous unit of color to serve in the war was the Tuskegee Airmen. Before the war, there was widespread belief amongst the military that African Americans were not smart enough to learn to fly sophisticated aircraft. But with a war in two theaters, the Air Force needed all the pilots they could get, and so they started training a small group of black pilots. As always, Eleanor Roosevelt helped the cause. She visited the Tuskegee Airfield in 1941, taking photographs and riding on an aerial tour with some of the airmen. And because FDR always, you know, eventually listened to his wife, he ordered African-Americans be allowed into combat for the first time, really, since the Civil War. The Tuskegee Airmen eventually flew 15,000 individual attacks across Europe and North Africa, earning 150 Distinguished Flying Crosses. And over 200 missions, they didn't lose a single pilot to enemy fire. Soon after, in 1943, FDR ordered all military bases to be integrated, and by the end of the decade, the U.S. military would be fully desegregated. Now, arguably, this was the easiest aspect of American society to change. Like, in times of crisis, the color of people's skin doesn't matter as much, especially when you have a fairly enlightened commander-in-chief, highly influenced by his ahead-of-her-time Declaration of Human Rights writing badass wife. African Americans recognized that earning their rights outside the military would be way more difficult, but... Many leaders used the rhetoric of the war to spark what would become what we know as the Civil Rights Movement. African Americans began calling for the double V, a victory over racism abroad and another victory over racism at home. Leading this charge was labor leader A. Philip Randolph. In 1937, before the war, he had organized the first official African American labor union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Cardboarders, and he used his influence to push for job equality during the war. When the war began, Randolph told Roosevelt that he was organizing a march on Washington to advocate for African Americans in the workforce. And wanting to avoid divisions at home while mobilizing for war abroad, FDR issued Executive Order 8802 in 1941. It decreed that, quote, there shall be no discrimination in the employment of workers in defense industries or government because of race, creed, color, or national origin. Basically, if you were a business that had a government contract, which was a lot of companies at this point. You could not discriminate on the basis of race. As part of this, FDR also created the Fair Employment Practices Commission to make sure the defense industry was following this order. And this commission in 1941 marks the first federal civil rights agency created since Reconstruction. What? We just like thought we were done in the late 1800s. After the war, A. Philip Randolph continued this momentum. He organized the League for Nonviolent Civil Disobedience Against Military Segregation. It's, it's like a long name, but it worked. In 1948, Truman banned racial segregation in the armed forces. A. Philip Randolph would later become a mentor to civil rights leaders. He helped organize the 1963 March on Washington, where a guy named King had a dream. More on him later. So, desperate times call for desperate measures. Factory owners, God forbid, had to start hiring minorities since so many of the white male workforce was off fighting Nazis and storming beaches. And many business owners went even further and just hired women. Whoa. Rosie the Riveter, it's important to note that World War II was the first time that women were actually allowed to enlist in the military. Although they were barred from combat, that ban wouldn't be removed until 2013, by the way. 
Over 68,000 women served overseas as nurses, 300 women flew as service pilots. Another 4 million women were hired by the government to take over clerical and administrative jobs in the military that freed up men to go fight. Even more women found work in the private sector. The number of working women increased from 12 to 18.8 million by the end of the war, and what's interesting is that most of this growth came from non-traditional working women, meaning a lot of them were married with children and in their 30s. So the most famous image we have of women in the war is Rosie the Riveter, but the majority of women worked behind a desk. But 2.5 million women did take up more manual labor in shipyards, aircraft factories, and manufacturing plants. And it's at this point that I would just like to mention that the federal government during this time funded a nationwide daycare program to support working mothers. Spending the equivalent of $1 billion today, the government oversaw the creation of 3,000 childcare centers and it eventually served half a million children. When women's rights advocates petitioned for the program to continue after the war, they were basically ignored. Like daycare was a wartime necessity, but the best care for a young child was from their mother. And just personally, as an enthusiastic patron of daycare, I would just like to say that I'm 100% confident that my three-year-old is getting more from his highly trained bilingual teacher before he comes home to a nice house we can afford because of our two paychecks and happy parents who both lead fulfilling careers. But like, hey, who am I to say what's best for my kid? Obviously, the patriarchal power structures kind of expected everything to go, quote, back to normal after the war was over. And it is true that many minorities lost their jobs once white workers returned, and many women left the workforce entirely, some willingly and others unwillingly. But after four years of the most productive economy we've ever seen, fueled by minority and female labor, it just really became harder for people to argue that those groups were somehow less capable than white men. World War II would prove to be the spark that started the modern civil rights movement. African-Americans unified behind a common rhetoric that held up American hypocrisy. Women had proved that they could do it all and other marginalized groups found community for the first time as they moved in even larger numbers to big cities and found little areas of opportunity. These groups from people of color to women to the LGBTQ community had seen glimpses of a world not dominated by white men. And like, they were not gonna allow things to return to the so-called good old days. Act three, return to the good old days. Oh, dang it. So while the United States after World War I experienced racial tension, communist fears, and disillusionment, the United States after World War II experienced racial tension, communist fears, and patriotism. I mean, like, I guess that's growth. And no one can deny that the United States after World War II was the most dominant superpower in the world. I mean, I guess the Soviet Union is gonna try to deny that, but we'll get to you later, commies. As Winston Churchill put it in 1945, quote, America at this moment stands at the summit of the world. And this of course is the moment of the boom. Now, the boom and the ensuing boomers, they carry, carry very different emotions depending on which generation you're a part of. Boomers have become a focal point of this epic and weird intergenerational warfare that we're waging online. For some, boomers are the epitome of hardworking traditional American values. For others, they're the reason I won't be able to retire until I'm 85. If you're listening to this and you're between the ages of like, I don't know, 55 and 75, then I'm talking about you and you're great. 
You got to live through the American golden age when we were at the height of our power and influence and the US saw an almost constantly growing economy. Good for you. But if you're part of Gen X, then we're talking about your older siblings, or aunts and uncles, or really young parents. You rebelled against their golden age patina and probably will have a slightly more complicated punk rock view of the boom. Honestly, I don't know what y'all think of boomers because you're smarter than us and stay away from social media. Just like work on your collection of vinyl and or flannel. But if you're a millennial like me or a Zoomer, I love that we're calling them Zoomers, like my students, well, oh, you're gonna really hate this part. Get ready to feel some combination of jealousy and resentment because the boomers got to live through the American golden age where we were at the height of our power and influence in the US on almost constantly growing economy. Good for them. <laughs> but like, don't blame your parents or grandparents. They're good people. I mean, I don't know, mine are at least, I don't know yours, but the boom has undoubtedly defined modern America. And whether that's good or bad depends on whether you were a part of it or you just missed the boat. Basically, it's like whether you're on Facebook or TikTok. So what was the boom? It's really a lot of things. Like demographically, we're talking about the baby boom. So in 1946, after the war ended, a record 3.4 million babies were born. Throughout the 1950s, 4 million babies are born each year. And by the end of the baby boom in 1964, there are 77 million new baby boomers. I love comparing this to the post-World War I era when men returning from war were like moving to Paris to write existential novels. I'm looking at you, Hemingway. But after World War II, soldiers come home and are like, where's my wife? Let's have five kids and buy a big house. The other part of the boom is the economy. So between 1945 and like the 1960s, the US GNP doubled from 200 billion to 500 billion. It's called the golden age of American capitalism, except that's really misleading. Like a lot of people remember the post-World War II era this way. Everyone just got back to work, rolled up their sleeves and made a lot of money. Capitalism wins. But we forget that a lot of this economic boom was fueled by massive government spending. The government built interstate highways, schools, distributed veterans benefits. They massively increased its spending on military materials and technology. Unemployment and inflation were low, wages were high, and a college education was affordable and accessible to many. So the real message is like, Capitalism plus government spending wins. Probably the most iconic imagery of the boom is the new suburban developments or the suburbs. Mass production was finally applied to housing as the GI Bill subsidized mortgages for returning soldiers to buy a home in the burbs for often less than it would cost them to rent an apartment in the city. And since auto factories were back to making cars instead of tanks, suburban families could have a car to get anywhere interesting, really. No offense, suburbs, but like, you get it. So the GI Bill is really important for understanding the boom. And it's really interesting because it's been referred to as the last gasp of the New Deal. Like it was one of the last major pieces of legislation signed by FDR just weeks after D-Day began. And first of all, I really like this flex. Like we're still fighting two wars, but Roosevelt's like, you know, they'll be coming home soon. <laughs> the problem with the GI Bill and the boom in general was that it was mostly isolated to, oh, you guessed it, white people. Mm -hmm. Officially, the GI Bill was supposed to apply to every veteran, including the 1.2 million black people who served their country. But in order to get it passed, FDR had to make a deal with the Southern Democrats. So they insisted that the program should be administered by individual states instead of the federal government, which meant the GI Bill just kind of got lumped into all the other Jim Crow era loopholes that excluded black citizens from getting their promised rights. Now, 
Quick note about the Southern Democrats. You're gonna be hearing a lot about them in the next few episodes. Essentially, the New Deal coalition of Democrats was so huge that it included people of like many races all across the country. They all unified behind FDR's vision of a government that more actively supported the working class and farmers. However, remember that for most of American history, politics was way more about your wallet than your personal beliefs. So white Democrats in the South were overwhelmingly also segregationists. Which is weird, because they technically were in the same political party as black Southerners, who finally left the Republican Party of Lincoln during the New Deal. And so that's why we need to make a distinction with Southern Democrats. They're sometimes known as Dixiecrats. These are white Southerners who are fine with big government to build the economy, but only if that same big government stays out of their local business, i.e. white supremacist oppression of people of color. And the only way the New Deal coalition is going to hold, especially once FDR is gone, is with presidents who appeal to that Southern Democrat group, which can be really frustrating for anyone who would like to see the president of the United States make quicker headway on civil rights issues. I'm looking at you, Kennedy. Okay, anyway, we'll come back to them later. But so even if a black veteran could get GI Bill tuition money for college, for example, they still had to get accepted into a university, which was difficult, considering a lot of universities had a cap on how many black students they would admit each year. Not a quota, not a minimum, a maximum. Now, kind of most importantly, it was really like impossible for black people to get home loans. Many banks refused to lend to black men regardless of the guarantees of the GI Bill. And important context is that a decade before the bill was even passed, at the height of the Great Depression, the federal government attempted to solve the problem of homelessness. There were not enough homes in cities, and so they tried to prioritize giving support to families and areas that were deemed a, air quotes, safer financial investment. And other parts of town were redlined, which meant the federal government identified them as a, quote, risky investment for banks. And uncoincidentally, these districts were overwhelmingly filled with people of color who were living in debt cycles of renting apartments and homes that they could never afford to buy. This practice basically meant that the federal government identified people of color as a financial risk to banks and encouraged them to save their precious resources for more stable, read white, investment opportunities. And side note, this is just a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? This is a failure to understand the long effects of slavery and then Jim Crow and systemic racism, right? I mean, of course, Black people are a riskier financial investment because they don't have any sort of long-term generational wealth to fall back on. <sighs> anyway, so back to the 1940s, even if a Black family could get a home loan, most suburban developments had restrictive covenants that banned Black families from buying homes in their area. HOAs often were created with the purpose of creating like rules and guidelines that made it effectively impossible for black families to move in. And to my millennial and Gen Z listeners, an HOA is a homeowners association. It's a thing that some neighborhoods are a part of. If you know, you own your home. So this is where like in modern day, there are a lot of HOAs that have all these rules about how your lawn has to look and all the different things, how many cars can be in your driveway, blah, blah, blah. Also, when you see like signs around that are like neighborhood watch, all of those are part of this legacy of white neighborhoods trying to put in place these informal systems that are technically colorblind, that are written to basically keep people of color out of their neighborhoods. Another loophole to this is that like a lot of times real estate agents would just refuse to show homes to black families. Uh, there are a lot of studies and there were kind of experiments that were done by black families with white friends where they would go into an open house 
and the real estate agent would tell the black family like, oh, someone's just put in an offer, I'm sorry. They would leave, a white family would come in and they'd show them around, right? And so I said earlier that I thought this was maybe the most important aspect of discrimination to understand. And this is because like the post-war world is a critical moment when a whole generation of working and middle-class families are buying their first home and creating this wealth that's gonna grow and be passed down. And at this moment, black people and more broadly people of color are excluded from this. And so we're still seeing the legacy of this today, right? That generational wealth, especially as home prices have just shot up in a lot of parts of the country, is really doing damage to our attempts to create a more equal society. So the suburbs are also gonna become the primary destination for white families looking to escape the growing civil rights movement. By the 1950s, society is really changing rapidly, right? Televisions are entering most homes and are broadcasting Elvis shaking his hips and making girls swoon. Beatnik poets are talking openly about sex, ah, and black people are fighting against oppression. For context, right, the Montgomery bus boycott of like Rosa Parks and Dr. King fame begins in 1954, just nine years after the end of World War II. In that same year, Brown versus the Board of Education declared school segregation unconstitutional. But like, I mean, most Southern states are gonna refuse to integrate for decades, but the all white suburbs provided a really easy way to kind of avoid the issue entirely by just leaving the more diverse urban areas where change was occurring more quickly. So next time you're driving into a suburb, look for the big welcome sign. More often than not, you're gonna see that those suburbs are technically separate little towns that were incorporated in the 1950s or 1960s. So by separating from the main city entirely, they could create their own local administration and municipalities which just segregated society even further. And honestly, it's this type of informal loophole segregation that's gonna be way harder to undo because it's generational and to a lot of people, especially white people, it's somewhat hidden. Of course, the other group that lost out on some of the promises of the post-war world were women. Right, Rosie the River was cute when we were at war, but afterwards most husbands and the government didn't want their wives leaving their domestic responsibilities for a job. Most of the 18 million women who were in the workforce at the end of the war were either laid off or chose to leave their jobs. But the images of women working in traditionally all-male jobs stuck with many people in society who were like, huh, maybe women can do the same things as a man. What a concept. But white women who had joined the armed services did get a lot of the benefits of the GI Bill as well. So while women couldn't get their own loans in most parts of the country, so I mean, that point was moot, over 65,000 female veterans attended college through the government program. Unfortunately, overall, there were actually fewer women in college at this time because universities decided to make space for male veterans by limiting how many women they admitted. Two steps forward, one step back. And for a lot of middle and upper class women, the boom further confined their opportunities. Now these women were out in the suburbs away from the bustle of city life. They were often without a car to get around since the husband needed it to get to work. And advice books and magazines exploded full of advice about marrying young and cooking pot roasts and welcoming your husband home with a full face of makeup and a martini. Now, of course, this domestic message was not new, but there was something different now. Like a lot of white women had experienced the full extent that American society had to offer. she had had a job that gave her some sense of purpose beyond family life and some spending money of her own. And the television opened up other opportunities and experiences. And so many women throughout the 50s began to experience what Betty Friedan is gonna call in the 1960s, the feminine mystique of the housewife. 
This woman who had everything she'd been told she could want, but still felt like there was something more. As Ferdan is gonna put it, the suburbs were, quote, burying women alive. And just to be really clear, I'm not anti-housewife, I'm not anti-suburbs, I'm not anti-being a stay-at-home parent, any of those things. I am anti-not letting women or anyone choose whether they want to be in the suburbs and be at home all day. That's all. Unfortunately, none of these issues were very important to the government at the moment, because as soon as we defeated Hitler, we came face to face with our next enemy. Cue foreboding music. This enemy was everywhere. In the anti-war poems of the beatniks and the pleas for equality of early civil rights leaders, in women who chose not to marry, and Hollywood actors who refused to make exclusively patriotic content. Why can't they all be like John Wayne? That's right. The boom and the plight of people of color and housewives was put on the back burner because we needed to fight the communists. To be continued. Thanks for listening. Make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast. And if you have time, go give me a review. I'm also making a lot more content now on my YouTube channel, on Instagram, and also on TikTok. Yeah, I drank the Kool-Aid. So if you like this stuff, please go check out those accounts. They're all anti-social studies. And again, if you really like the content that I'm making, then go to patreon.com slash anti-social studies and join my community. Thanks. <laughs>